Uh, we are going to be in Ephesians chapter 6, as we have been the last several weeks tonight. And we're going to look at um, just one short phrase. From verse 15. We've been going through the different types of armor, different pieces of armor. We're going to look at all those here in a minute. But just, just to start out, just read this, this one verse, verse 15. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. As shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given By the gospel of peace. Here's what I want to say starting out, and, and, and we all know this, but it's good, to, it's good to say it and it's good to hear it. Life is really hard, isn't it? Life really is hard. It, it, it's harder for some people than it is for other people, uh, but it's hard for everybody. And it's harder at some times than it is in other times, right? It might be hard for you right now. It may not be that hard for you right now. But if it's not hard for you right now, then either it used to be hard for you or it's about to be, right? Because life really is hard. It really is. Just and as as I was as I was kind of thinking through this, I was I was thinking of just just a few examples. Right? We have a we have a prayer sheet in our Bibles. I left mine at my at my seat back there. But we have a prayer sheet in our Bible that's full of stuff, and it's all stuff that we care about. It's all stuff that we're worried about. It's all stuff that we are upset about, in in some ways, right? And and, and that it's pretty big. At the end of each month, it gets pretty big, and and those things represent struggles and problems and difficulties and, and things that people are facing that are, that are hard. Um, there's, a, there's a family at my school that I was talking to um, over the last couple of weeks. This, this young guy, he's a junior in high school this year. Um, last year he was in my office toward the end of the school year uh, because he had been telling kids that he tried to kill himself. Um, and whether he did or not, I don't know, but he said he, that, he, said that he had tried that and, and had failed. And, and so whether he really did or not, I don't know. His mom told me that he didn't. I don't know. But something's going on. There's something in his life. There, there's some problem. And, and he and I have been talking about that a lot. And, and then just over the last, um, the, the last two weeks, I guess, he just told me that his mom's being prosecuted now for, um, for, for stealing some things at her work, for using a work uh, business account, using a work, a work PayPal account, credit card, to, to buy things for their family. Life's really hard for him. Life's really hard for his family. Right now, he has, has two sisters, um, and his mom and his dad, and they have a foster care child that's with them now also. Life's hard for them. And, and he didn't really do anything to make it hard for him, right? This is something his, that, that, his, that his mom ha- has done or is at least is being accused of doing, and, and that's hard. Just a few weeks ago, actually, the, the last time that I preached here um, on a Sunday night, we got finished with the, with the Sunday night service. Everyone was leaving, turned the lights off, walked downstairs, and there's a lady downstairs, I've never seen before, don't know who she is, um, but, but she walked in and she asked, hey, can I, can I talk to you for a minute? And so I didn't want to be in the church by myself with a lady, um, and, and so Linda Stivers happened to still be here, so I asked her to stay, and so it was me and Miss Linda down in the, in the first floor hallway, and, and this lady's there literally lying in the floor, weeping, crying, harder than I've ever seen anybody cry before, uh, just about how hard her life is, how bad her life is. And, and she's just saying over and over and over, I just don't think I can do it anymore. I just don't think I can do it. I can't, I can't keep on. I can't, I can't do it. And I didn't have anything to say to her. Didn't have an answer. I couldn't, I couldn't say, well, if you just do this, then everything will be okay. Right? Because everything wasn't going to be okay. 
I, I didn't have any, any, anything to say to her. She just kept saying over and over and over, I just can't do it anymore. I just can't make it. Just can't get through life. Life is just too hard. There's too many things going on. I can't, I, I can't do anything. I don't have money to pay my rent, but I can't get a job because I'm having to raise my grandkids because my daughters are on drugs. And, and there's no answer. I don't know what to do. I, I, please help me. Please tell me what to do. Please give me something that, that, that will help me in this situation. And, and while our lives may not be to that point, life is hard. And, and, and often life is hard. And, and, and like I said, if it's not hard for you right now, then it, then it will be. And, and all of us have had difficulties. My, I've talked to my, my grandmother quite a bit here. My granddad passed away about three years ago, and, and life has been so hard for her since then, even to the point to where she, she doesn't want to be at home by herself ever. And so that makes it hard for my mom and for her brothers, and it makes it, makes it difficult uh, between, with their relationship with each other because my mom is there all the time, and her brothers are, are there some, but not as much as her, and they don't. It's, it's just this, this, this struggle, and my grandmother's just so, so lonely and so scared being there by herself. Life, life's hard. Life's, life's bad sometimes. And so I want to look at, at Ephesians 6 tonight and, and see that, that Paul gives us some encouragement here. Paul gives us some, some strength to make it through life. Okay, and and so I want to I, I want to think about a couple things first. One, one thing is there, there's a when we start talking about spiritual warfare, and especially when we start talking about this passage, Ephesians six, and the armor of God. There's a question about um, what what's going on here. What is this? What type of battle are we in? And and what type of stance do we have? Is, is this an offensive war? An offensive battle where we're fighting against someone or, or something or situations, or, or are we more taking a defensive stance? And we're withstanding, and we're uh, and we're and we're taking and, and surviving attacks that are that are coming against us. And and if you if you read different Bible scholars, some will say it's more offensive, and some will say it's more defensive. And and, and there and there's reasons for for both of those. And, and and probably the answer is both. Probably there's there's some of both in there. But what I want to say tonight is that it's that it, I think it's more defensive. And I think especially this passage is more defensive, at least what we're talking about tonight. The, the gospel is more defensive here, and, and we'll see why. But, but, but starting out, let, let me say this. Sometimes we get the idea that the gospel is for unbelieving people. The gospel is for non-believers. The gospel is for, for non-Christians. And that's absolutely true, right? But it's not just for non-Christians. The gospel is for us. The gospel is for believers. The gospel is for me and the gospel for you. And I, and I need it all the time, and, and so do you. And, and we're going to see that tonight, I, I hope. The gospel is not just for, for unbelievers. It's not just an entryway into the Christian life. The gospel is the Christian life. The gospel is how we get into the Christian life. The gospel is how we become a Christian. But the gospel is also how we remain a Christian. The gospel is also how we survive uh, the, the Christian life. And, and we'll see that. So open up, if you haven't already, to Ephesians 6. And we're going to start in verse 10. And, and we're, going to, we're going to read through from, from verse 10 all the way down to verse 15. And as we go, I'm, we're going to stop and, and kind of look at, a, look at a few words or look at a few phrases um, along the way. Okay, so verse 10 says, finally, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Okay, he says for us to be strong. He says for us to have strength. But look where it comes from. It's not from us, right? He's not saying kind of find your own strength or build your own strength up from within you. He says find your strength, be strong in the Lord and in his might. Okay, so our strength comes from the Lord's might, comes from God himself. 
Okay, verse 11, put on the whole armor of God, and here's why, so that you may be able to stand against the scheme of the devil. So that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. This is one reason I'm saying that I think this is more defensive. Because he's telling us what he wants us to do is have this armor on, and, and with the armor we're going to stand against Satan's attacks. We're, we're not necessarily marching out and, and attacking him, but he's saying this way we can stand against the devil's attacks against us. Verse, verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So again, the goal here, the purpose here of taking up this armor is that we can withstand Satan's attacks, not, not necessarily so that we can attack him, but so that we can withstand his attacks, so that we can stand up and so that we can stand firm. Verse 14, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can distinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all power and supplication, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And then he goes on and asks them to pray for him as well. But I, th- I think what's happening here is Paul is, is giving us encouragement. Paul is giving us exhortation. Paul is calling us to stand up against Satan's attacks against us. And, and he gives us these different ways to do it. And, and I think maybe more than any other piece of armor, the shoes of the gospel of peace do that for us. The shoes of the gospel of peace give us, help us, give us the tools to stand firm. Okay? If you're, if you're building a building, I'm not an engineer, not an architect, um, but I do know that, that if you're building a building, especially a really tall building, what's the first thing you have to do? build a really strong, solid foundation, right? And if you have a building that's really, really tall, that means you're going to have a, a foundation that's really, really deep, right? You're going to have several basements in that building. I was watching on TV yesterday. Um, um, I, I like to watch, sometimes I like to watch, um, like, um, home improvement shows or stuff like that on PBS. I used to watch This Old House with my mom all the time when I was a kid. And, and so I kind of like watching those now. But there was a show yesterday, and they were building a, it was a rock, kind of a rock wall, and they were putting a, like a privacy fence up on top of the rock wall, right? And so they were saying if, if all we do is just attach it to the top of the, of the top row of the rocks, then when the wind comes, it's going to blow the, you know, catch the, catch the privacy fence, and it'll blow the whole rock wall off. And so they had to, had to cut these holes, drill these holes down through the rock into the ground. And they had big posts that went all the way down through the rock wall, all the way down into the ground. So that when the wind came against the privacy fence, it wouldn't be knocking the wall over. It would, be, it would have this firm foundation in the, in, in, down in the, in the ground. And this is what the gospel is for the believer. This is what the gospel is for us. This is what the gospel is for the people of God. You've already seen a video a few weeks ago. You've already heard people talk about how um, this armor that the Roman soldiers wore that Paul is, is, um, is using here as an analogy, those, uh, those shoes, the sandals, had, had spikes on the bottom of them. And those spikes would dig into the ground so that the, so that the, the Roman soldiers would be able to stand firm, would be able to stand their ground, right, and not get knocked over. 
I don't know if you, if you know, know how, the, how the Roman shields would work. They had these big shields. It wasn't like a little like Captain America shield. There was these big shields they could put their whole body behind, and they would even interconnect with one another. And so they could, they could, they could kind of stand, kneel, put their shields up, connect them with the, with the ones around them, and, and make this big impenetrable wall. But part of what made it so, so firm and so impenetrable was that the, the shoes they were wearing had these spikes on them. So they were, they were rooted in the ground. And so if you push against the shield, the shields aren't going to fall. They're all connected together, but also you're not going to slide because you have these spikes on. Sort of like wearing cleats to play, to play soccer or football or something like that. And we need this solid foundation also. We need this solid foundation also. And, and Paul says that the gospel is that. The gospel gives us this foundation. Okay, so before we go any further, let, let's ask the question then answer the question, what exactly is the gospel? When we say the gospel, what are we talking about? What is the gospel of peace? Okay? And there's a, there's a good way to kind of summarize the gospel in, in four or five points. You've heard, you've heard our, our pastor Josh talk, do this before probably. But a good way to summarize the gospel in just four or five sentences, four or five points is, number one, God is holy. God is holy, meaning God is righteous. God is good. God is loving. Okay? And, and so he's holy. He's good. He is, he is righteous. He, he's loving, he's kind, he's merciful toward us. But that also means that, that, he's, that, he's, that he does what's right all the time. He's a, he's a just judge, meaning he judges sin. Meaning he judges sin. The Bible tells us that the, that the penalty for sin is death. The penalty for sin is death. And God's a just judge. He's a good, righteous judge. And he does what's right all the time. And so God is, is holy. The, the second part of the gospel is that we're not holy. Right? And that's, that's bad. That means there's a problem. Because you have this holy, righteous, good judge, and you have this not holy, not righteous, not good, sinful person, you and me, and now there's conflict between us. Now there's, now there's separation, there's division between us and God, and that's a huge problem. Because if God's a good judge, that means he's going to judge sin. And if we have sin, that means we're going to be judged, right? Well, the answer to that problem is Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. Jesus came. And in coming, Jesus took our sins upon himself, took our sins off of us and carried them on himself, right? So, so what that means is God can still be just and good and righteous. He can still judge sin. He can still do right by, by sin and also forgive us for our sins. And the way he does that is because he does judge our sins. He does punish our sins, but he punishes them in Jesus instead of in us. He punishes them in Jesus instead of in us. And then the fourth point of the gospel is that we have to respond. We have to make some type of response. And not responding is a response. Not responding is a rejection. So, so kind of four, four sentences, four points of what is the gospel of peace. God is holy. We're not holy. That's a problem. Jesus is the answer to that problem. And now what's your response going to be? What is your response going to be? Um, there's, a, there's a guy named Clinton Arnold who is a, uh, a Bible scholar, teaches uh, somewhere and he's written a book about Ephesians, and, and he says that there are um, three fronts from which our enemy often attacks us. So if we're going to stand firm against our attacker, we're going to stand, stand firm against the schemes of the, of the evil one, of the, of the devil, let's think about how does he attack us? How do we get attacked? And he says there, there are three fronts, and we're going to look at these three. These are going to be kind of the three points for, for our, our sermon tonight. The first one is we get attacked by the ruler of the realm of the air. And we'll, we'll look at that in a minute from, um, and, and, and we'll see what, what that means. But we get attacked from the ruler of the realm of the air. And then secondly, we get attacked from the flesh. 
That's us from, from within. We get attacked from ourselves, the flesh. And then thirdly, attacks come from the age of this world. Attacks come from this world. So the ruler of the realm of the air, the flesh, and the world. Satan, the flesh, and the world. And, and so first of all, what must we withstand? We must withstand these three things. And so first of all, how do we withstand? What does it mean to withstand the ruler of the, of the realm of the air? What does it mean to withstand the devil? How do we do that? And how does the gospel give us a firm foundation to do that? Okay, well, well let's look at a couple things first. You don't have to turn here, but if you want to, you can. Um, I'm going to read these very, very briefly. We're not going to spend much time here. But Job chapter 1, if you know about the book of Job, uh, Job is a man. And there's a, there's a part at the very beginning we're going to read where Satan comes to, to God and says, um, and, and God, they, he, he and God had this conversation, he ends up attacking Job. And the whole book of Job is, is, a, is a story, kind of a behind-the-scenes look at Satan attacking Job, and then how's Job going to respond to that? And advice he gets from his friends and different things like that. But, but look, at, look at, or listen to Job chapter 1, verse 6. Now there was a day... When the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Okay, verse 11. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Okay, and then I'm also going to read 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Listen to this. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Satan is on the earth. Satan is prowling around on the earth looking for someone to devour. Satan is walking to and fro, going to and fro on the earth, walking up and down on it is where he tells God he's been in the beginning of, of Job. Okay? So we want to be careful. And, and let me say a couple things. We want to be careful. First of all, we don't want to make it sound like we don't believe, we don't want to think that Satan is equal to God. He, he absolutely is not. Right? Satan and God are on two different levels. They are not at all equal. Okay? And then another, another thing we want to be careful for is we don't want to think or act or believe um, like every single bad thing that happens to us comes from Satan. Okay? That's not necessarily true. Not everything that, that, that happens to us bad necessarily comes from Satan, okay? Satan is not everywhere all the time like God is, and so, God, so, so Satan can only be tempting one person at a time. He can, only be, he can only be doing something bad to one person at a time, okay? And I don't want to burst your bubble, but you're not that important, right? And neither am I. So if, if, if Satan can only really be tempting one person out of eight billion um, in the world at a time, I'm probably not the one he's spending his time on, okay? Now, he's not the only demon, right? There are other other evil forces. And, and, and Peter tells, uh, in, in this passage here, Peter tells regular believers, just like you and me, to watch out and to be watchful for the devil's attacks. And so we want to be careful. He's not equal to God. They're not on the same level. He, he can't be everywhere at the same time. So not everything bad that happens to us comes from him. But we do want to be watching out for him. And we do want to take his attacks seriously. And so we can, we can make two mistakes here. One mistake we can make is we can give Satan too much credit. We can give him too much attention. We can spend too much time thinking about him and talking about him and, and those kind of things. But the other mistake is that, that we, can, we cannot spend enough time talking about him and thinking about him and, 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 and fighting against him. And, and to be honest, as, as, as Baptists, we, we are more prone to make the second mistake. 
We're, pro, we're more prone to not worry about him, to not think about him, to not, to not be concerned about him. But, but Satan is real. The devil is real. And he really is against God's people. He really is fighting against us. And he wants us to fail in so many different ways. He wants us to make a shipwreck of our faith, the way the New Testament talks about it. He wants us to deny God. He wants us to be, to be in sin. And, and he's working toward that. And, and so how is it that we fight against that? How is it that, that we stand against Satan's attacks, and especially how is it that we stand against Satan's attack with the gospel? Well, if you look at that First Peter passage again, chapter 5, verse 8, if you look down to verse 9, verse 8 is where he says to watch out that the adversary is seeking you like a lion. Look at verse 9. Resist him. How do you do it? Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. He says to resist him, firm in your faith. Firm in your faith. The way, that, the way that, sa- that, that Satan attacks people, the way that Satan tempts people, it, it comes in the form of calling God's character into question. Okay, think about Adam and Eve. The way, that, the way that God tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. He came to Eve and he said, he said, can you eat of any tree? And she said, we can't eat of the one in the garden. And he said, did God really say that? And then he said, it's not that you're going to die. It's that you're going to become like God. And God doesn't want you to be like him. What Satan is doing is he's calling God's character into question. He's trying to, he's trying to cause Adam and Eve to, to question whether, whether God really is good, whether, whether, whether or not God really can be trusted. The gospel to us is the proof that God is trustworthy. The gospel to us is the truth that God can be trusted. He has done everything that he promised. God's done every single thing that he promised he would do. He's never left a promise un. Fulfilled. He's never left a promise undone. And then listen to Romans chapter 8. This is a passage that, that many of you are probably familiar with. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The gospel is the proof that God is for us. The gospel is the proof that God is trustworthy, that God will do whatever we need. God is working for our benefit. God is working for our good. He's already given us the most costly thing he could ever give us. He's already done the the greatest thing he could ever do by giving us his son. And so why would we question his commitment to continue that? Why would we question his commitment to finish the work if he's already given the the highest thing he he could ever give? And so when, when, when Satan comes to us and when Satan tempts us and Satan causes us to, to call into question God's character, whether, whether, whether he does that and, and we do that explicitly, consciously, or, or whether it happens more, more, more slyly, the gospel is the answer to that. God is trustworthy. He's done what it takes. He is absolutely trustworthy. He's, he's said it to us and he's shown it to us. Right. I, I, Josh, Josh talked about that with his with his kids. He, he, he said that he tells his kids, God, we know that God loves us because he tells us so in the Bible and because he shows us so in the gospel. He shows us so on the cross. The gospel is God's uh, is God's guarantee, God's promise, God's demonstration that he is for us. If you continue reading in Romans chapter chapter eight toward the end of that verse, it says, no, verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
nothing present, nothing, nothing that's happening to me right now, nothing yet to come. Nothing that's about to happen can separate me from Christ's love. It doesn't mean those things aren't bad. It doesn't mean those things aren't, aren't difficult. It doesn't mean those things aren't serious. But it means those things aren't, aren't ultimate. Those things are not, are not final. The second, the second way that temptation comes to us, the second, um, the, the second thing that we have to withstand, Satan's attacks, but then also our, our own flesh, our own, our own sinfulness. Isaiah 64, 6 says that, that our righteous deeds are like filthy rags, right? He doesn't say our unrighteous deeds are like filthy rags. He says our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. The best things that we can do, the most righteous, the most good things that we can do, Isaiah says, are, are nothing more than filthy rags. Ephesians 2 says that we are by nature children of wrath. Sin is not just something, we talked about this in Sunday school today, sin is not just something that we do, right? We can, we can kind of have the, have the idea sometimes that, 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 that sin is something we're involved in, something we do, and, and so we have a bunch of sin o- over here. But if we can just kind of separate ourselves from that and stop doing those things and kind of remove ourselves from, from those situations and, and stop those outward things, then, then we can get away from sin. And that's not true. Sin is something that, that, that's in us. Sin is something that, that, that is part of us. We're corrupted by nature. And so we can't get away from sin because wherever we go, sin's there with us because we are the sinners. It's not that it's something just that we do. It's that we are sinners. It affects every part of us. It affects our, our emotions, the way that we feel. It affects our, our actions, the, the things that we do. It affects our decisions. It affects our, our, our desires, our wills. It affects the things that, that we want to do, whether we do them or not, right? That's the, that's the point of the law against coveting in the Ten Commandments. Paul said, I knew that I was a sinner because of the last commandment, coveting. He said, before that, I could, I could convince myself, whether it's true or not, I, can, I could convince myself that I was honoring my mom and dad and I hadn't murdered, hadn't done these things. I could convince myself that I was keeping the Ten Commandments, but when it came to the last one, coveting, Paul says, I couldn't convince myself of that because I knew that inside of myself, in, in my inward most places, I knew that, that, that I was guilty of that. It affects our, sin affects our desires, our will. Sin affects our thoughts. It affects what we think. It also affects how we think. The, the way that we think. And, and the problem with this is, or, or, or one of the problems with this is, is that this could lead us to despair. Uh, about once a week, maybe, maybe once every two weeks, I have this, have this conversation with a student at my school where, where, he, where he comes to me, or, or sometimes I have to go to, go to him, but, but he says, I'm done with church, I'm done with God, it's just too much, it's too hard, it's just too, I just can't do it. Can't, can't do it anymore, it's, I'm, I'm done with it. I got too much other stuff going on, I just can't focus on it anymore. I'm, I'm done. The, the problem is, it's not, that, it's not that it's too hard. It's not that, he's, that, 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 that he can't do it. It doesn't mean that he's too bad to be a Christian. It doesn't mean that he's too sinful to be saved. What it means is he doesn't understand the gospel. Right? The gospel doesn't say that we become Christians and then, and then everything's perfect and we begin to, 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 to live righteously. The gospel says that we become Christians and we become even more aware of our sin. And we become even more committed to repentance and even more committed to asking forgiveness from God and from, and from other people. My favorite, my, my favorite scripture passage, I, I think, my, at least my favorite single verse in scripture, is 2 Corinthians 5.21. I, I don't know that I'll ever get a tattoo, but if I ever get a tattoo, this is probably what I'll get tattooed on me somewhere. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Okay? And it says for, actually I'm going to read it to make sure that I, that I, that I get it right. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, he made him to be sin, 
who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sakes, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, who was perfectly pure, to become sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel. The gospel is that, that my flesh is weak. The gospel is that my flesh is corrupted. The gospel is that, that, that by nature I'm a sinner, and I can't get away from that. I can't, no, no matter how hard, hard I try, I can't make myself good. No matter how hard I try, I can't make myself righteous. But the gospel comes and says, I don't have to. The gospel comes and says that my righteousness is in Christ. My righteousness comes from outside of myself. Jesus gives me his righteousness. And I'm not righteous because I can do all the right things. I'm not righteous because I can, uh, b- because I can stop doing all the bad things. I'm righteous because Jesus gives me his righteousness and because Jesus takes my sin. Now, that doesn't mean we take sin lightly. It doesn't mean that, 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 it's, that sin's no big deal and so we just sin all the time and don't worry about it. No. But it does mean that my standing before God doesn't, doesn't uh, stand or fall based on my ability to be good. My standing before God stands or falls based on, am I trusting in Jesus? Am I trusting in Jesus? So, something else that our pastor says all the time that is, that is so good, he says that the, the, the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not sin and, not, and no sin. Right? The difference between someone who, who's a Christian and someone who's not a Christian is not that the Christian doesn't sin and the, and, and the non-Christian does sin. We, we both sin. We both have sin. Sin's not the biggest deal. Right? The biggest deal, the biggest problem is, how do you respond to your sin? That's what, that's what distinguishes a Christian from a non-Christian. Not that one sins and one doesn't, but that the Christian is constantly repenting of his sin. A, a Christian is constantly hating the fact that he is sinning. Hating the fact even that he wants to sin. And there's, there's this, this, this double nature, this, uh, this fight within the Christian's nature itself, where, where, where I love to sin, and I hate that I love to sin. And I don't want to, and I, and, and I try not to. Paul said this in Romans 7. The, the good that I want to do, I don't do. But the bad that I don't want to do, that's what I keep on doing. Right? And remember his question at the very end, who will rescue me from this body of death? And his answer, thanks be to Jesus for doing that. We fight our own flesh with the gospel as well. We fight our own flesh with the gospel as well. The gospel says that my righteousness is in Jesus, not in myself. And then finally, the third thing that, that we withstand and fight with the gospel is the age of, of this world, worldliness, this, this world system itself. Um, listen with me to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verse 4. It says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Friendship with the world is making ourselves enemies to God. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Listen, if, if, if you're not actively fighting against the influence of the world on you, if you're not actively fighting against that right now, then, then you can rest assured and I can rest assured that we're being carried along by the world right now. If we're not actively fighting against the world, against worldliness, then, then we can be assured that we are being carried along with it right now. Just like an abandoned boat in, a, in, a, in an ocean or in a, in a sea being, being carried along by the, by the waves. 
We're influenced in a, in a million different ways by the world. What we value, what we think, how we think. In, in, many, in many real ways, Christians and churches right now are not otherworldly. We find ourselves fitting comfortable, comfortably in the world today. Far too often we find ourselves fitting comfortably into the world today. I want to read just a, 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 just a few paragraphs from, from this little booklet. It's by a guy named David, David Wells. Um, and listen to what he says here. He says, um, he says, second, it will be impossible to recover a vivid otherworldliness without recovering a fresh vision of God as holy. We today are actually on the verge of a fresh theological discovery of a very different kind. It is that God is centrally love and that he is only peripherally and remotely holy. And in so doing, we're on the verge of standing scripture on its head. No, the holiness of God is not secondary. It is central. And without this holiness, our faith loses its meaning entirely. As P.T. Forsyth declared a century ago, sin is but the defiance of God's holiness. Grace is but its action upon sin. The cross is but its victory, and faith is but its worship. Okay, listen. And so without a compelling vision of the holiness of God, worship inevitably loses its awe. The truth of God's word loses its interest. Obedience loses its virtue. And the church loses its moral authority. And it is precisely here, listen, it is precisely here that modernity, which is more or less synonymous with the world in the New Testament, has made its deepest intrusion into the life of the church. Modernity has rearranged our appetites. Because of our therapeutic culture, we favor relational matters over those that are moral, the consequence of which is that God's holiness is pushed into the background and his love is brought into the foreground. Self-surrender is devalued and self-fulfillment is prized. Preoccupation with character fades and fascination with personality and self-image advance. The God in whom love has replaced wrath produces a Christianity that is appealing for its civility, but one that has no serious word for a world which is racked by evil. It is a form of belief that is sympathetic but not searching, that lends its ear but not its revelation of the Holy One. Without the holiness of God, sin is just failure but not failure before God. It is failure without the presumption of guilt, without retribution, indeed without any serious moral meaning at all. Listen, th- this, is, this is very dangerous for us as, as believers and, and for the church. There's a guy that, that, that was one of my professors in college. He was the, the most, uh, he, he's probably the most well-known uh, conservative um, ethics professor in America. And just last weekend, he gave a speech in, at a place in, in Washington, D.C., wrote, a, wrote an editorial in a newspaper in Washington, D.C., the Washington Post, I think it was, where, where he wrote this editorial, gave this speech saying that, that he was asking for forgiveness for years of saying that it was wrong to be homosexual. And he was saying that the church needs to embrace that lifestyle. The church needs to, um, to, to, to be for homosexual people, right? And here's what he said. I wish I, I wish I printed it out and, and brought it with me. I, I, didn't, I, I didn't plan on saying this. But here's what he said. He said, um, he said that we all have something sinful about us, and we all have something sinful specifically about our sexuality. And he said the, the difference is that there's not really a difference. We shouldn't make one sin worse than another sin. 
But listen, what, here's what he's saying. What he's saying is, we're all sinful, and so we should just embrace that sinfulness. We're all sinful, and so we should just embrace that, sinf- that, that sinfulness. I'm sinful, so I shouldn't call someone else's sin out, is what he's saying, right? And that's something that our world tells us all the time, and that's something that, that the gospel goes against. It's something that the scriptures go against. Something the scriptures go against. Something that the, the gospel goes against. Listen, listen to this last, last uh, section here. He says, um, 51 years ago, Harold John Akinga addressed the National Association of Evangelicals when it was very much in its infancy. Here's what he said. He spoke of the crisis in Western civilization and of the responsibilities evangelicals had. Let me quote from his address. This nation, in its maturity, he said, is passing through a crisis which is enmeshing Western civilization. Confusion exists on every hand. We are living in a very difficult and bewildering time, but few people realize what tremendous change we're undergoing. The hour has arrived when the people of this nation must think deeply or, or, uh, or be condemned. We must recognize that we are standing at the crossroads and that there are only two ways that lie open before us. One is the road of the rescue of Western civilization by a re-emphasis on the revival of Christianity. The other is a return to the dark ages of heathendom, which powerful force is emerging in every phase of our lives today. He said, and, and then the author here says, those were prophetic words and if I'm not mistaken, we today, despite all of our prosperity, he's talking about the church, despite all of the church's prosperity, we today have little left of what it takes to impact our secular world. That's the irony of our success. What he's saying is that we as Christians and we as the church have become so much like the world in so many ways, we've become so influenced by the world in so many different ways, that we have nothing left to say to the world. We've become so worldly in so many different ways that there's, there's not much of a distinction anymore. There's not much of a, of, of, a, of a difference between what we believe and what the world believes, between, between what we value and what the world values, what we enjoy and what the world enjoys, what we, what we love and what the world loves. The gospel answers that problem also. Our feet need to be planted firmly, but it matters where they're planted. Right? The spikes in these, in these shoes on these Roman soldiers, they're, they're planting them firmly wherever they are, but it matters where. And he says that we are to be in the world, but not of the world. We should think differently than the world does. We should have different goals than the world does. We should value different things than the world values because we have a different master than the world has. We have a different master than the world has. The world says that freedom means no boundaries, no limits. No one can tell me what to do. The gospel says that freedom is complete, voluntary, willful submission and slavery to the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel tells us that we serve a different master. And so the gospel tells us that we do things differently than the world does. Even just think about the fact that we're here on a Sunday night when it's about to snow and, and people are kind of getting, getting in for the night. But it's important for us to be here to worship together. What Josh was just saying about, about his son Noah praying and, and, and hoping that, that he continues to, to have that, that type of heart, that's not normal, right? Most people in the world don't give sacrificially to other people. That's something where the church is different than the, than the world, it's something where the gospel calls us to be different, right? Most people in the world don't, don't take their vacation time and spend it on a mission trip overseas somewhere or on a mission trip in America somewhere. That's something that the church does, something where we're different. And the reason is because we value different things. We value different things. We're, we're, we're attacked on at least these three fronts. 
Satan himself directly attacking us, calling God's character into question. Our own flesh telling us that we're not good enough. The world uh, telling us what we should value, what we should love, what we should enjoy. And the gospel comes against all of those attacks. We stand firm on the truth of the gospel, denying those things. So life really is hard. There really are bad things that, that happen in life. Things really do get bad. The family, I, I talked about this at the beginning here, that where, the, where the mom is, is being prosecuted. All this stuff on our prayer sheets. The lady in the hallway that I, was, that, that I mentioned. Things really, really are bad. But the difference between Christians and non-Christians, the difference between people that are, that are following Christ and people that are not, is that we have a different starting point. We have a different foundation. The, the parable that, that Josh read to start the service off tonight, right? Are we building on the foundation of the rock, or are we building on the foundation of sand? In a thousand years from now, 10,000 years from now, no one's going to care whether this kid's mom went to jail for, for stealing some stuff, Right? In 1,000 years from now, in 10,000 years from now, people are going to care about what is your relationship to Jesus. Things are bad, but they're not ultimate. Bad things happen, but they're not final. Jesus has the final word. The gospel is the foundation that we stand on. The gospel is the foundation that we rest on. The gospel is what tells us what's important. The gospel is what tells us what's true. The gospel is what tells us what we value, what we commit ourselves to, what we stand on, what our commitments are. Let me pray. God, I, I thank you tonight for your word. God, I thank you that we have a gospel. God, I thank you that you sent Jesus to, to be our Savior, to be our, 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 our Lord, our King. And God, I'm thankful that you called me to be uh, one of his subjects. And God, I'm thankful that you called us to be your children. God, I pray that you would help me to understand the gospel even, even more clearly. God, help me to see my sin in light of, of the truth of the gospel. God, help me to, to hate my sin and to turn against it and to fight against it. And Father, also, God, I pray that, that you would help me to see, to see attacks and to see temptations and to see um, despair from a gospel lens also. God, when Satan comes and, and calls your character into question, God, I pray that, that you would help me by the power of the gospel to see that that's not true. God, I, I pray that, that, that when I fall into some type of sin and, I'm, and I'm, I'm in despair because of my own flesh and my own sinfulness, God, I, I pray that you would help me to take that sin seriously and to be upset about that. God, I, pr I pray that you would help me through the lens of the gospel to see that that leads me back to Christ. It doesn't drive me farther away from him. God, I pray that by the by the power of the Holy Spirit, God, you would help me and help us and help our church to be different from the world around us. God, that we would not fall into the temptation of doing what the world says, being what the world calls us to be. God, I pray that, that like the passage we read in 1 Corinthians, that we would not be, or in Colossians, God, that we would not be carried along by empty philosophies and vain teachings of, of this world. But Father, help us to, 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 to build our lives on the rock of, uh, of the gospel, on the rock of our Savior following what he says, doing what he calls us to do. God, I pray that you would help us to do that. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.